0: Any Do That is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving, and investing? Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post Brand Studio. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Each week, we bring you the answers to some critical questions about the powers of the presidency. And to do that, we often anticipate moments that are likely to happen, and then help clarify what the consequences might be if they do. Thursday, two of those anticipated moments came to fruition. The White House announced President Trump's plan to declare a national emergency to get funding for his wall on the US-Mexico border. And William Barr was confirmed by the Senate to serve as the United States Attorney General. And so this week, we're bringing you a refresher episode in response to these important news moments. This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. And this week, we'll be rerunning parts of some recent episodes that explain the news events that unfolded Thursday. First, we'll revisit our episode examining the rules that govern the president's ability to declare a national emergency. In early January, during the partial government shutdown, we talked to Liza Goteen of the Brennan Center for Justice. She oversaw the center's recent study about the vast and lesser-known powers granted to a president when he declares a national emergency. And when we talked, Trump was merely considering declaring an emergency to fund a border wall. Liza explained the extent, then, of Trump's power when states of emergency are put in place. I'd asked her about the law passed in 1976 that granted presidents sweeping executive power under emergency declarations.
2: Congress passed this law as an effort to try to actually increase congressional oversight and supervision of the president's use of emergency powers. So presidents were already declaring national emergencies and making use of various statutes that said that the president could do certain things in national emergencies. But there was very little structure to the process and very little congressional involvement.
1: In the post-Watergate era, Congress thought the law would limit the dangers of sweeping executive power by increasing congressional oversight. It didn't exactly work out that way.
2: The Congress made a choice when it passed that law not to put any limitations on the president's ability to declare a national emergency in the first instance. Why would they do that? I think they thought that oversight and accountability and reporting would be sufficient. And I think that's a mistake that Congress often makes, actually, when the executive branch is overreaching or when Congress is worried about overreaching, Congress thinks that if it just requires a few more reports and you know a few hearings, that that's going to do the trick. The truth of the matter is that the substantive provisions of law are what bind the executive branch. And if those provisions are too broad or too permissive, you know all the oversight and accountability in the world is not really going to solve that problem.
1: It turns out that that miscalculation by Congress, the belief that oversight would be a sufficient way to set limits on presidential power in national emergencies, has had some pretty big consequences. For decades since the National Emergencies Act, Congress has authorized 136 emergency powers. Ninety-six of those powers can be activated by the president alone.
2: There's a huge range, really, and and they address almost every possible area of government that you can think of. They include things like controlling agricultural exports, changing the wage rate requirements for public contracts, controlling domestic transportation. There's really an enormous range. And really, some of these these laws involve narrow, common sense responses to uh, foreseeable crises. So for example, there's a law that allows basically the experimental use of, of drugs or other medical interventions without FDA approval in the case of a public health emergency, a crisis, like a fast-moving pandemic where there's simply no time to, to go through the process of getting FDA approval. And you can see situations in which something like that would be necessary. And it's also hard to see how a provision like that would be abused used. But then some of the other provisions are much broader and really give the president tremendous license to do things that it's tricky to see how they how they could help matters rather than making them worse. So right. So for my
1: understanding, for somebody who's not a lawyer, if you even if the national emergency at hand, let's say, isn't a public health emergency, he still can use those public health that this provision that's related to public health to meet the needs of his emergency. Is it like no matter what the emergency is, you get access to
2: all of these provisions? Uh, It depends on the provisions. Some of the provisions actually do require uh, more of a connection. They they require that certain, you know, findings be made or that certain conditions exist, but most of them don't. So there are literally dozens of laws that the president can access, no matter what the nature of the emergency and no matter whether there is any fit between the law he's invoking and the crisis at hand.
1: So from my understanding, we are currently in several state of emergencies, right? Like it's not there. These are ongoing. They haven't ended. There are some that began under George W. Bush at, in nine eleven. Trump has issued, I think, two since he's been president. So right. how
2: three. So how are
1: these ongoing? What, what does
2: it actually mean to be in a state of emergency? Do they end? What does that look like? A state of emergency can last for a year. Uh, Under the National Emergencies Act, but then the president can renew it and renewing it is no harder than issuing it in the first instance. It just requires the president's signature on a piece of paper and then it lasts for another year. And that can go on year after year after year. And that's exactly what tends to happen. So the 9-11 emergency is not the oldest state of emergency that we're in. We are still in a state of emergency over the Iran hostage crisis from 1979. And there are several other uh, states of emergency that are still in place that are older than the 9-11 state of emergency. The average length of these states of emergency over the last 40 years has been about 10 years.
1: Okay, And are those states of emergency being leveraged in some way that we don't see?
2: I think the answer is yes. Under the National Emergencies Act, the president is supposed to report to Congress every six months on basically his expenditures during the state of emergency um, and you can actually find those reports uh, going up t- to about I think 2003. you can find those reports online. Uh, you cannot find those reports publicly uh, since since then they, they might be being filed uh, but uh, it, it's you, I have not been able to get a hold of them. let me just let me just put it that way. And so uh, what's being done under the 9/11 state of emergency for example, Uh, We have some indications. There's some public reporting. We know that it was used right after 9-11 to implement uh, stop loss and to call up reservists. It was then misused during the Iraq war to do the same thing, uh, even though the Iraq war had nothing to do with 9-11. And the president has to state in the Declaration of Emergency the particular statutory authorities he's using. So that gives us at least a general sense of what's being done, but the specifics, there's not enough transparency in terms of of what's happening under these emergencies.
1: So have presidents typically kind of self-regulated on the use of these powers, or have we seen presidents abuse the powers that they're granted in
2: states of emergency? For the most part, there has been in my view, a surprising amount of self-regulation. More than two thirds of these powers appear to have never been invoked, or at least not since the National Emergencies Act was passed. So that, to me, suggests you know quite a bit of of self-regulation. On the other hand, we have seen some misuses, and the examples I would give are President George W. Bush relying on the 9-11 state of emergency to uh, free up his use of the military in Iraq. President Trump also relied on the 9-11 state of emergency last year when he invoked a law to fill a chronic shortage of Air Force pilots. So that was, I think, a misuse. Both Presidents Obama and Trump invoked non-existent economic crises in In order to adjust the statutory pay raise for federal employees Um, so we we've seen misuses
1: can the president declare a national emergency under the current circumstances is there enough of a a
2: justification for uh, declaring well the definition of an emergency should be that there are unforeseen and unforeseeable circumstances that are very different from the norm and that require immediate intervention at a speed that, is, that only the, the president can accomplish, that Congress can accomplish, that there's essentially no, no time for Congress to fulfill its usual role here. The legal question that the courts would look at is more complicated, as, as legal questions often are. And in this case, it's really compounded by the fact that Congress chose to really place no limits on the president's ability to declare a national emergency.
1: And if he does declare a national emergency, is it within his authority to then go ahead and start building
2: the wall? What he can do is access specific provisions contained in these various different laws, but he has to stay within those provisions. So the question is, do any of those laws address the situation here? Do they give him authority to, to engage in this project that has not been authorized or funded by Congress? There are a couple of laws that have been floated that allow the Secretary of Defense to basically move money around, I would say that neither of those laws is a perfect match. And they are both open to legal challenge. Ultimately, that's probably where the legal fight will be in the courts, even though really what the fight should be is, does the president get to declare a national emergency to get around the will of Congress?
0: Can He Do That is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving and investing? Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and The Washington Post Brand Studio. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Now, Trump's emergency declaration was one new development on Thursday. The other, as I mentioned earlier, was the confirmation of William Barr to serve as the United States Attorney General. Shortly after Barr's confirmation hearing in mid-January, I sat down with Washington Post national security reporter Devlin Barrett. We talked about what Barr's confirmation would mean for the relationship between the president and the Justice Department and about how Barr as attorney general could play a major role in the release of the Mueller report. Here's that conversation. So Devlin, tell me a little bit about William Barr. How did he find himself nominated for attorney general?
0: So William Barr is basically poised to become the once and future attorney general. He was the attorney general in the early 90s for George H.W. Bush. And so he's already had the job. And now he is very close to becoming the attorney general again. And he was basically picked by the president because a lot of the people around the president said he would be the perfect person to take this very tough job in a very tough situation. and. Barr has pitched himself to the public in the Senate and the president as someone who is basically so old and, you know, has done it before. So he's not really beholden to anyone. That's his public pitch is, you know, I'm not going to take a die for anyone and I'm not going to, you know, uh, cower before anyone because uh, ultimately I, William Barr, don't need this job.
1: Mm -hmm. And yet his vote, his confirmation vote was delayed this week. Why?
0: Well, for one thing, when it comes to senior officials' confirmation process, it's pretty typical at this point in Washington for the minority party to just demand and get an extra week. Mm -hmm. That is an oddly frequent ritual, let's say, in the confirmation process of senior officials. But it was delayed, and it was delayed in large part because Democrats are unhappy with some of Barr's answers about whether or not Mueller's final report – will become public and how much of that information would be made public. And Democrats are, are pretty unhappy with Barr's answers on that point.
1: Yeah, I want to talk a little bit more about that. But one other point of contention that has emerged from, from Barr's hearing is that he suggested that he won't necessarily heed advice from the Justice Department's Ethics Council right. about recusing himself. So if the Ethics Council decides that their recommendation is that he recuse himself from any Mueller probe involvement, he might not necessarily listen to them. Is that unusual?
0: Uh, it is unusual, and it's – although it's becoming more usual by the month because the current acting attorney general, uh, Matt Whitaker, did essentially the same thing in that ethics officials said to Whitaker, we think you should recuse here. And Whitaker's own advisors told him, we don't think you should follow that, rec- that, that view. And Whitaker decided not to recuse. And frankly, Whitaker's decision paves the way for Barr to give himself that option. It's strange. Frankly, the DOJ ethics process is usually done behind closed doors and doesn't get this level of scrutiny from the outside. But now that we have this level of scrutiny after everything that's happened with the Russia investigation and recusals over the last two years, it's very alarming to a lot of Democrats that Barr is basically giving himself the out of, well – If I'm told to recuse, I may just decide not to do it.
1: But why would Barr even be told to recuse himself?
0: So Barr, uh, as basically a pundit, senior, respected conservative lawyer in Washington, wrote a bunch of editorial pieces in which he at times defended some of the president's actions, like firing Jim Comey as FBI director or criticized uh, other Justice Department officials' actions, like, for example... Then Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates' decision not to defend the tr- first travel ban, which was very controversial in, in how it was done and executed. And he has made basically made a series of public statements that have expressed significant skepticism about Mueller's mission. And to some Democrats, that's very alarming.
1: Is there any evidence that he would, let's say, limit Mueller's funding, his probe, anything like that?
0: There's no evidence of that, and he insists that he will not stop Mueller before his work is done, and he will not fire Mueller without good cause. And doesn't, and you know, he and Mueller are old colleagues and friends. They worked together at the Justice Department before, so he has insisted that he wants Mueller to finish his work, and he will not, as he put it, you know, obey an improper order to to dismiss Mueller or or cut him off at the knees in, in a bureaucratic sense. But frankly, for a lot of Democrats, that's not good enough. They want more promises from Barr that he'll release more information when the time comes.
1: Okay. So on that point, this, as you say, was a major point of contention in his confirmation hearings, whether or not he would limit the contents of the report that were made public or released to Congress. What is the normal process for releasing a special prosecutor report?
0: So it happens very rarely. We know what the regulations call for, which is basically... Mueller to file a report of what he's done and why to the attorney general, and then the attorney general to file some sort of report to Congress about the conclusion of the work. Barr has sent very mixed signals as to to how much information might be contained in such a filing, and a lot of Democrats are demanding promises up front that Mueller's report, whatever it is, be sent to them.
1: Directly. Directly. Just bypassing the attorney general completely.
0: If not bypassing, then at least, you know, letting them look over the attorney general's shoulder and make some of their own judgments as to to what Mueller says.
1: So why might something, let's say, legitimately get redacted from Mueller's report before it gets to Congress?
0: One of the basic principles of federal prosecutions is that if you do not charge someone with a crime, you do not, for lack of a better term, air out all the bad stuff you found that didn't lead up to a criminal charge. Mm-hmm. That is written into the regs. That is a longtime practice of the department. I got to say, though, like one of the strange things about the last few years at the Department of Justice has been how far then FBI Director Jim Comey went from that practice. And Barr, I think pretty significant to me, Barr in his confirmation hearing specifically pointed to how Comey did that in terms of saying, saying publicly A number of critical things about Hillary Clinton, even as he announced he was not going to seek charges against her. And Barr very specifically singled that out and said, you know, this is not how the department does business. That has some real implications for for what might happen with any Mueller report in that if, for example, Mueller tells the attorney general what he found for a variety of people around the president that he did not decide to charge with any crimes, there is an internally consistent logic to not releasing that information publicly, to just saying, you know what, we're not charging them. We're not going to speak to it.
1: But is there a case to be made that essentially Comey set a new precedent for what the public should expect?
0: Uh, I think there will certainly be a lot of Democrats who make that argument, and there may even be some lawyers who make that argument. Uh, I know that within the Justice Department, there is a great deal of concern that Comey's example should not become a precedent. Mm -hmm. And and so I think this is going to be, I I suspect this will be a a bit of a a struggle between the Justice Department and Congress on that very point.
1: So if if we're following the Justice Department precedent that you don't indict a sitting president, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: would you then not air out any details about the president's involvement because ultimately he's not going to be indicted?
0: I think there's certainly an argument you could make for that. And I think part of the marker that Barr has laid down publicly is that if we're not going to accuse anyone of anything, and I I think there's a distinction to be made between accusing versus indicting because obviously I think both Mueller and Barr are, are not interested in changing Justice Department precedent on the notion that you do not indict a sitting president. But if you were not going to accuse someone of wrongdoing, up to and including the president, I don't think it's likely that they will want to say much about what they found about that person, whether it's the president, whether it's someone close to the president. I think they're going to be fairly quiet on that front if they're not accusing anyone of wrongdoing.
1: You don't think that Mueller would necessarily – and again, we're, we're, mm-hmm. we're all guessing. But right. is there a possibility that Mueller would lay out a case for here's – if somebody were to indict the president, this is the case against him? Is that something that we would see?
0: I think that's always been – the general framework for how Mueller is approaching the work, that his his mandate is to find out what happened here. And if it includes suspected criminal acts by you know people up to and including the president, that he needs to report that, even if that doesn't get reported in an indictment form because of longstanding DOJ uh, views on that. I definitely think that's on the table. I, I don't think we know enough to predict yet whether... Mueller believes he has evidence of that kind of criminal behavior by the president or or others close to him.
1: And so just to clarify, though, the attorney general can decide whether or not that information goes into the report?
0: Uh, the attorney general decides what information goes to, to Congress, to the report to Congress. Mueller decides what he puts in the report to the attorney general. And frankly, I think members of Congress are going to fight tooth and nail to see every iteration of, of that process. I don't think lawmakers are going to be satisfied just being told by the attorney general, for example, well, I've told you all the important parts.
1: Right. So the attorney general is an incredibly important role when it comes to a special prosecutor investigation Absolutely. and the releasing of those findings. Absolutely. So here, whomever the next attorney general is, likely William Barr, he's in a position to potentially protect whomever Mueller's report might condemn.
0: Uh, in theory, I mean that that's definitely a possibility. I think Barr views his job first and foremost as protecting. Barr has said he views his job first and foremost as protecting the Justice Department, mm-hmm. and this is a this this entire case and this entire issue of investigating a president is very treacherous ground for the Justice Department, which answers to the president. So I, I do think that the Attorney General is supremely important in this process, but I also think. Mueller's view of these questions is supremely important. I I don't think if Mueller believes something should be, I'll put it this way, if Mueller believes something should be out in the public space, I think other people would have a hard time preventing Mueller from getting that out in the public space in one way or another. So Mueller's view of this stuff is just as important, if not more so, than Barr's.
1: Does the president, besides technically overseeing the Justice Department, Mm -hmm is he able to intervene in any way with the release of Mueller's report.
0: So the president is the boss of the attorney general and the president is through the attorney general the boss of the special counsel. What both what what Barr has really made adamant adamantly clear is that he will not permit any sort of political interference or meddling with Mueller's process. So he has pledged that publicly and I think if the president gave an improper order in that way, Barr has pretty clearly signaled he would not follow it. And that seems to be a pretty firm ground he's, he's staked out there.
1: Mm-hmm. And what happens when a, an attorney general doesn't follow the orders of the president?
0: Well, I mean in theory you risk being fired because you know everyone, every cabinet secretary serves at the pleasure of the president. Um, you can be fired for any reason or no reason at all. So that would be up to the president, really, if in that scenario. But I got to say, you know, watching <laughs> watching the last two years, what's been striking about this process has been that after the Comey firing, and obviously the Comey firing was a big deal in this process and sort of set a lot of this in motion. Mm-hmm. You know, the president has been reluctant to sort of drop the hammer on, on other folks in the Justice Department Precisely because the the back the political backlash of it might be more than he's willing to take, uh so he's often held fired
1: all right, so my final question to you then is how do you expect this political pressure on the Justice Department to sort of play out in the eyes of the public
0: well look i this is a little nerdy, but I have watched for more than a year as House Republicans have gone after Justice Department officials very hard to release every scrap of paper they have on the Clinton email investigation and other things. I frankly expect a bit of role reversal now where you might very well see Democrats taking up a very similar charge against the Justice Department demanding documents about the Russia investigation. Because if what's good for the goose is good for the gander, then by that by that measure, you know, uh, whatever is not made public by the attorney general... Congress, and particularly House Democrats, may force the Justice Department to make public.
1: This has been another episode of Can He Do That? Now, I've been hosting this podcast for more than two years. We just hit our two-year anniversary. And this week, we have a special question for our listeners. What have you learned in the time that you've been listening that surprised you most about the powers and limitations of the American presidency? Or what questions have we not yet answered that you're dying to know? Let us know by emailing me, Allison Michaels, or you can find me on Twitter at @AllisonMikes. Mikes. Thank you so much for listening. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the multi-talented Carol Alderman with design help from Kat Rudal brooks logo art from Loren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon.
2: If you like Can He Do That, you should check out some of our other great podcasts, like Post Reports. Every afternoon, host Martine Powers brings you the unparalleled reporting and analysis you expect from The Post's newsroom in our newest daily podcast. Or try Retropod, a daily show for history lovers featuring surprising stories about the past, Rediscovered. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com podcasts. The Washington 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 Post. Post.